You are at the right place at the right time. Welcome to the Discover the Word podcast with Kevin Perney. This is a ministry of discovertheword.net. Kevin here, and it is so wonderful to be back with you today on the Discover the Word podcast. I have a question for you today. Are you living wise or otherwise? Well, that is the title of today's message by Pastor Roger Spradlin, a senior pastor at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield. And he is preaching from the book of James today. And that answer of that question is certainly revealed in his message today. Not only will he help you discern that if you are not sure, but he will clearly give you the path from the Word of God to live wise. So, without any further delay, here is Pastor Roger. Now, we're in James chapter 3 today. We're in a message called Living Our Faith. It's a verse-by-verse study of this book. Let me read for you the text today. It's in James chapter 3, beginning verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, uh, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion, every th- evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The title of the message today is called Living Wise or Otherwise. It is important anytime we study a passage of Scripture to understand the context that is going on in leading up to that passage. At the end of chapter 2, in the book of James, James makes this statement, faith without works is dead. Now, when Paul talks about good works, he is emphasizing the keeping of the Mosaic law of ritual and ceremony and so forth. James uses the word works in a little different connotation. He is using the word works in the sense of Christian behavior, of living like Christ. So he said, faith without Christ-like behavior is dead, lifeless, not genuine, not real is what he's saying. And then to emphasize it, he actually says it three times. Faith without works is dead. Faith, he says, without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And then in chapter 3, the great illustration of our works is our words. What you find early in chapter 3 is this very extensive passage about our tongue, about our speech. But he starts the passage about the accountability of a Bible teacher. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. It's a warning to those who preach or teach the Bible 
about their words. Moffat translates it, don't crowd in to be a teacher. Because being a teacher incurs a stricter judgment. You give an account, an account to God for what you teach, or perhaps what you do not teach. Now, when we come to verse number 13, after this extensive passage about the tongue, I think we're still in the same context of a teacher. And he asked this rhetorical question, verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding? That word understanding is translated from a word that is a technical word for an expert. And so I think he's still talking about an expert as far as a Bible teacher, a preacher, a pastor, or someone that is an expert in teaching. James is saying the two greatest tools of a teacher is our tongue, that is our lips, what we say, that's in verses 2 to 12, but not only our lips, but our life, how we live, that's verses 13 through 18. James uses three metaphors about our speech, the, the bit in the horse's mouth, the rudder in the ship, and the fire and the forest. He's speaking about controlling our tongue, controlling our lips, but now he turns to our life. It's a very difficult passage to outline, but it's pretty easy to understand. Now, sometimes the Apostle Paul's writing is the opposite. Sometimes his writing is easy to outline, but difficult to understand. James is writing very much like the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Proverbs, where Solomon just scatters these pearls of wisdom out and, and these little pithy sayings. Remember, James is a Jew, and James is writing to Jewish believers for the most part. So it should not be surprising that he writes in the motif of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. But really, here's the first principle. Wisdom comes from God. We're going to discover in verse number 17 that he says wisdom is from above, meaning that it comes from God. Now, when we get to chapter 3, that should be no surprise that he says that, because he's already stated that essentially in chapter 1. If you back up with me, chapter 1 and verse number uh, 5, he says, if even any of you lacks wisdom, and it's a conditional sentence, it could be translated, since you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so he said wisdom comes from asking God. Now, knowledge or data we accumulate by learning, but wisdom is a gift from God. And it's given, James says, first of all, in response to our prayer, we ask God. But we know from Scripture that it's also given in response to studying the Bible. The, the two pillars of the Christian life are in many ways prayer, that's us talking to God, and then the Bible is listening to what God has to say to us. Listen to how the psalmist stated it in Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. So we gain wisdom in two ways. We gain wisdom by asking God, and then we gain wisdom by listening to God. Here's the next principle. There's a difference between wisdom and human knowledge. 
Wisdom is a word that is actually very difficult to define. We struggle to define it, but all of us knows it, know it when we see it. Maybe the def, best definition is this. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge in a godly way. I don't think James is so much instructing us as he is exhorting us. Because here's the reality. Most of us who are followers of Christ, if we were honest, we would admit that we already know more than what we're doing. We know more about the Bible than what we're actually obeying. So it's not that we need more information. What we need is more application. And wisdom is the application of knowledge to how we live. Now, in the Old Testament, the word wisdom is used mainly in the sense of what we would call spiritual. In the Old Testament, it called a wise man. We would call it a spiritual man, someone that is following God, someone that is living a life of obedience. So wisdom is not just common sense. What James is describing is a spiritual person, someone who obeys God. In verse number 13, he says, who is the wise? Not who is the rich, not who is the educated, not who is the popular, not who is the ambitious. God puts a premium on being wise. Now remember, the theme of the book of James is our belief affects our behavior. Wisdom is the application of our faith that we say that we have. It's the application of our faith in how we live. Now, the Old Testament actually has a lot more to say about wisdom than the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it tells us that wisdom is to be more desired than money. Now, we live in a culture where people don't think anything is more desired than money. But Solomon, the wisest man, said that. Listen to Proverbs chapter 3 and verse number 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Now, we tend to measure success, and we certainly measure wealth in terms of material things. Financially, that's how we measure success. Rather than the spirituality of a life that is applying the principles of the Word of God. But God says it's more desired than even money. Wisdom is, is better than uh, academic accomplishment. Listen to what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will uh, preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom and all you're getting, get understanding. He says, above all, get wisdom. There's a lot of highly educated people in our culture. People even that we might say are genius and yet they cannot even manage their own life. Because wisdom is better than knowledge. Because if you're wise, you will seek knowledge. Einstein was a brilliant man that had knowledge, but he did not have wisdom because he rejected Christ. Isaac Newton was a man that was perhaps equally brilliant to Einstein, but he was also wise because he was a follower of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that knowledge is not important. God doesn't put a premium on ignorance. You don't have to check your brain at the door 
of the church to be a Christian. Christianity is not just emotional. There's a rational, intellectual component to our faith. A lump in your throat is no excuse for a vacuum in your head. A teacher once asked the class what a vacuum was, and no one could answer, so she called on a little boy. She said, what is a vacuum? He thought and thought. He said, I can't remember, but I have it up here. Well, sometimes that's where we have a vacuum, right? There's no excuse to not seek to seek to intellectually understand God, even though we're finite. There's no excuse not to seek to intellectually understand the Word of God. Knowledge comes from study, but wisdom is the gift from God. Now, God won't give you knowledge. I mean, you might be in school and you have a hard test. You pray, oh, God, give me the answers. Give me knowledge. Give me knowledge. He ain't going to give it to you. Now, if it's an English test, he isn't going to give it to you. It just doesn't work that way. But wisdom is different. He will give you wisdom if you ask. Now, even though wisdom is hard to define, you will discover in reading this paragraph of Scripture that James speaks of it nearly exclusively in terms of relationships. If we don't have it, we don't have wisdom, we won't get along with others. James says there will be envy. There will be strife. If we have wisdom in our life, it will be defined by peace, peace with other people. When you think about it, ultimately life is about relationships, isn't it? That's, that's really what it's about, is relationships. First of all, it's about this vertical relationship between us and God. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't just depict that somehow God is distant and abstract and it gives us commandments and say, do this and don't do that. And we live up by ritual and we have these lists that we check off of right and wrong. No, we can have this living, dynamic relationship with God through his son, Jesus, where we speak to him in prayer and he speaks to us through the Bible. So that, that's the most important relationship is vertical. But then there's also horizontal relationships, and that's what really what life is about. That's how we live life, in relationship to family, in relationship to people that we work with, in relationship with friends, in relationship to people we go to church with. Look again in verse number 13 of what he says. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct. These works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Here's the principle. Wisdom is demonstrated in godly character. If we, ha if we say that we have wisdom, let's put it in our vernacular instead of the Old Testament vernacular. If we say that we are a spiritual person, then James says, show it. Display it in how you live. You remember when you were a little child in school that they had show and tell? You would bring something to school and you would stand before the class and you would show them whatever it was and then you would tell them about it. That's what James is saying. Don't just tell me about your faith. Show me your faith. Wisdom is a willingness to alter our faith to the truth of the gospel. Wisdom is a willingness for us to alter our life to the truth of God's Word. The bottom line for James is our obedience to God. You say you have faith, where's your good works, i.e., your Christian behavior? You say you have faith, you say that you have wisdom, show me in how you live. What good is it if you read the Bible and you even study the Bible and you understand the Bible and perhaps you even teach the Bible? but you have never altered your personal life to conform to what it declares. You may have a high, high IQ. 
You may be highly educated. James' question is this, though. What about our lips, what we say? And then what about our life? How do we live in relationship to other people? We're often enamored with what I would call just the facade of faith, the outward trappings of faith. Today, there are Christian celebrities, famous singers that cost tens of thousands of dollars to get them to sing, famous speakers. Christian celebrity, to me, is oxymoron. You shouldn't ever even put those words together. But James is saying how we live is the mark of a spiritual man or woman. Not how talented you are, not even how gifted you are. In verse 13, he says, our works are to be done in meekness. That is the word for breaking a horse or gentling a horse that now it is under control. Some translate it as gentleness. Plato, the philosopher, said a teacher must be able to dialogue with their students without ever becoming angry. And sometimes that's difficult. That because you're asked as a teacher so many silly questions and people are argumentative and so forth, and it's easy with superior knowledge to put that student down. But a great teacher, they're not always the smartest, they're not always the most gifted, but a great teacher is always gentle with those who want to learn. And a great Bible teacher, their life aligns with the truth. Now James has been speaking very positive, but he turns negative in verse 14. Look what he says. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Here's the principle. A lack of wisdom results in a life of envy, selfishness, pride, and deceit. That's the flip side of wisdom. He says the flip side of wisdom is what he calls bitter envy. Envy is wanting what others have. But there's some people that reach the point of what James is calling bitter envy, where not only they want what others have, they resent others having it. We now live in a culture where many people, in fact, maybe most people in our culture, would rather be envied for what they have instead of admired for who they are in their character. Then James mentions being self-seeking. And I think it's still in the context of a Bible teacher. It's someone that wants to be held up on a, on a pedestal. A.W. Tozer said, the person who really wants the limelight better never have it. It's the idea of extreme competitiveness. And he's not talking about sports here. It, it, it's the kind of person that always has to be number one. They divide life between winners and losers. That's their division. Sam Jones said, when dogs fight over bones, it's a sign that bones are scarce. When men fight over religion, it's a sign their religion is scarce. And yet there's some Bible teachers, they have to win the most petty of arguments on some secondary or tertiary issue, but they, they've got to win. James says that, that they're self-seeking, and then he says it's in their hearts. It's not open. He's speaking of a person's motivation. They're wanting to be number one. It's like the undertow of their life. And James says they boast. Often even Christian people are proud of what they ought to be ashamed of. I hear Christian people brag about their temper. Oh, I don't get mad easy. But when I'm mad, I'm really mad, you know. They're bragging about something they ought to be ashamed of. Or, or sometimes they, they're proud of some vice within their life. And they say, oh, it's okay, I'm under grace. Grace 
is so precious that God has extended grace to us. It should never make us proud. Charles Hodge said the doctrines of grace humble a man without degrading him and exalt a man without inflating him. People start bragging about grace within their life. They don't understand grace. Sometimes people brag about their lack of graciousness to other people. They brag about how abrasive they are or how forthright they are. I just tell it like it is. Things that ought to break their heart, they brag about. And, and then James says they lie against the truth. Some people live their life as if the truth is fluid instead of fixed. They change their beliefs to match their behavior instead of changing their behavior to match their beliefs. Beware of the Bible teacher that is always trying to justify their own sin. It's like building a house and you cut the board wrong, and so you just go ahead and cut the ruler to match the board. Well, guess what's going to happen to the rest of the house that you're building? In verse 15, he describes this kind of human understanding or human wisdom as being earthly. Earthly. That, in other words, it makes rational sense. But it's not revelation. It doesn't come from God. It's not what God says. Some churches, in fact, many, many churches today, are, they're run just like a business. It's all about advertising, communication, strategizing, and so forth. If a church is just a business, if, if, if our church was just a business, I'd be pulling my hair out most of the time because we live on the edge sometimes financially far more than what is wise for most business. We are many, many times utterly, totally dependent upon God. The reality is churches will either be supernatural or they will be superficial. They are never both. And then James talks about this kind of earthly uh, understanding is sensual. He doesn't use the word like we use it today. It doesn't mean erotic here. It means natural, living by our senses of what we can understand apart from God. Years ago, I remember reading an article in Field and Stream magazine about a, a doctor. He was a biologist that traveled to Africa, and he was told not to swim in a certain river because of crocodiles, and he did anyway, and he was killed. And they buried him. They put a tombstone there. They put his name on it. And then the epitaph read, educated, but no sense. <laughs> That's some people. And others, uh, they say, oh, they're real proud of the common sense that they have. Common sense is not wisdom. Our senses, sometimes we sense things. There's some things that make sense, but they're not of God. There's other things that don't make sense, but they are of God. It's what God has revealed that's important. Then he says it's demonic. If we're not controlled by God, we will be controlled by something else or maybe even someone else. Scary, isn't it? Verse 16. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Here's the principle. Wisdom leads to a life of peace, while a lack of wisdom leads to a life of conflict. He uses the word confusion. The word literally means disharmony. That's what it means. Have you ever been in a church where there was disharmony? Have you ever been in a church where there was no peace, there was no unity? It seemed like it was the pastor against the people or the people against the pastor. I can tell you something about that church. Wherever it's at, souls are not being saved. God doesn't use that. 
So much of what James is saying is about relationships. That if you do not have wisdom, if you are not living a life of obedience to God, you will have serious conflicts and broken relationships within your life. That's what he's saying. He mentions every evil thing. Some would say that word literally means pettiness. An unwise person ends up majoring on minors. Sometimes even indoctrinally, they end up majoring on some secondary or tertiary issue and they, they fight on that. They major on minors and in a relationship we say they make a mountain out of every molehill. They fight over little petty issues. Pettiness destroys families. Pettiness can destroy churches. An unwise person hears the truth. Maybe even they appreciate the truth. They understand the truth, but they never apply the truth and how they live towards other people. Look at the contrast of verse number 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. He uses the word pure. It's the idea that the believer that, that is being obedient to God, they seek to jettison any mixed motives out of their life. They seek to to, to get rid of any sin within their life through, through confession. The, the wise person, they realize how stupid sin is. They realize how stupid pettiness is and how destructive sin is within their life. And then he uses the word peaceable. And that goes against our nature. By nature, we as human beings, we're pretty warlike. We get pushed, we want to push back. We get hit, we want to hit back. We want to counterpunch, you know. But a wise person doesn't carry a chip on their shoulder, always looking for a fight, always looking for someone to mistreat them so they can pounce on them. And yet some believers even, they use the Bible as a club, always arguing about some issue, arguing some doctrine. I, I never have quite understood that. If you argue with a lost man, it's like scolding a blind man because he can't see. If you argue with a saved man, that's your brother. Why are you in a fight with your brother? There's an old saying, never argue with a fool because those standing around may not be able to tell who is who. <laughs> then James says a wise person, a spiritual person is someone who is willing to yield. Have you ever noticed that some people always want to go first at the four-way stop no matter when they get there? You can always tell them because they've got dents in their car usually. If you don't want to yield, you're eventually going to get a wreck. And people who are unwilling to ever yield their rights in the relationships of life, they will have a series of wrecks and a series of broken relationships will follow in their wake. Then James says, this spiritual man, this wise man or woman, they're full of mercy. Now, by nature, we're not like that, right? By nature, we're cynical and hard and even harsh at times. So, some people, they never want to let go of any wrong. Tucked in their heart is this long list of everyone who has ever mistreated them, and they just hang on to it. That's an agenda for misery. We as believers who have been given so much mercy, how can we as Christian people not demonstrate mercy to other people? James is perplexed by it. 
And then he says that we are to be without prejudice. He's already extensively addressed the issue, the sin of prejudice. But notice here, it's included in a pretty horrible list of sin. Then James says we are to live without hypocrisy. It's literally the word for mask. It comes from the Greek theater. In those days, they, they didn't have an actor for every part, and so someone would play multiple parts. Instead of changing, they just held a mask in front of their face on a stick. And that was their character. And they said their lines behind a mask, and then they put another mask and another one. And the same person could play many, many parts. And that word mask became the word hypocrite. James says we're to live with no pretense. We're to be authentic in the way we live. In Aesop's fables, there's the story of two men that met on a very cold day, and one man was blowing on his fingers, and the other man said, why are you doing that? He said, to warm my fingers. And later, they're having some soup, and the same man began to blow on his soup, and the man said, well, why are you blowing in your soup? He said, to cool it off. And the other man said, I cannot be your friend. I can have nothing to do with anyone that blows both hot and cold out of the same mouth. Well, there are people like that. Hot and cold spiritually comes out of their mouth. They're a different person depending on who they are with. That is hypocrisy. Verse 18. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now this... This is not the context, but there is a thing that I would call theological peace. It's vertically between us and God. Now, the reality is we have all sinned. The Bible's clear about that. And because of our sin, we're alienated from God. We're separated from God. In fact, the Bible says there's enmity between us and God. Without Jesus, you're the enemy of God. I don't know that that flies in the face of our culture. Our culture says, I'm not that bad. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. People think, well, I've never shaken my fist at God. I'm not the enemy of God. Yes, 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 you are. Without Christ, we are the very enemies of God. We've broken his word. We've broken his will. We've even broken his heart as we have sinned. There is not a natural peace between us and God vertically until we acknowledge our sin and we cry out to Jesus. And when we place our faith in him, we are now declared to be righteous. It's not that we've earned this righteousness by being good, cleaning up our own life. No, no, no. It's nothing that we've done. It's not of works, it's not of ourselves. the Bible says. We are declared righteous because of what Jesus has done in our place. And then we have this peace vertically, theologically between us and the Creator. But this context in James is not about vertical peace, it's about horizontal peace. It's not about declared righteousness, it's about practical righteousness of how we live. And he's talking about being at peace between us and other people. Now, I recognize that's not always possible. The Bible says as much as lies within you, be at peace with others. Some people you just cannot be at peace with. But you have to make the effort. Maybe today you say, Pastor, I'm a believer. There is a vertical peace between me and God. There was a time where I admitted my sin. I cried out to him. He has declared me righteous. I've been justified by faith. I am right with God. There's peace between me and God. There's no longer enmity. There's no separation. I, I, I am in Christ. 
But though you have vertical peace, perhaps you do not have horizontal peace with some other people within your life. Or maybe you have horizontal peace with other people. You say, well, I kind of get along with everyone. But you don't have vertical peace between you and God. You need Jesus. What a tremendous joy to be at peace with God and to be at peace with others. James says, that is wisdom. We hope you were blessed by today's message and want to thank you for joining us on this Discover the Word journey today. If you have a moment, would you join with others in going to iTunes and leaving a good review for us? Thanks. We also invite you to visit our website, discovertheword.net. Until next time, have a wonderful day and may God richly bless you.